Hi, this is Jill Jarris. From September 2017 through April 2020, this podcast was known as Olympic Fever. We've since changed its name to keep the flame alive, but we're committed to keeping our back catalog available to you. So please keep the name change and this disclaimer in mind as you listen to it. Olympic is a trademark of the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, or USOPC. Any use of Olympic in the Olympic Fever podcast is strictly for informational and commentary purposes. The Olympic Fever podcast is not an official podcast of the USOPC. The Olympic Fever podcast is not a sponsor of the USOPC, nor is Olympic Fever associated with or endorsed by the USOPC in any way. The content of Olympic Fever podcast does not reflect the opinions, standards, views, or policies of the USOPC, and the USOPC in no way warrants that content featured in Olympic Fever is accurate. Thanks for listening, and now on to the show. Why is it so many of these stories the athletes always get in trouble and get screwed? Mesdames et Messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello and welcome to another episode of Olympic Fever, the podcast for Olympic fans. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? Hello. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day. We are taping on Valentine's Day. Makes me feel the love, the love of the Olympic flame. That's very true. I feel the heat in my heart. Of course, that could have been lunch, but let's go with the, the flame right. of the Olympic. Right. Can I just tell you that doing this podcast and here and talking to the athletes and we hear that Olympic motto, Sitius Altius Fortius all the time. Yeah. I got to tell you, it's frustrating when you're dealing with people who don't believe in faster, higher, stronger, or better. I got to tell you, I've been working on an interstate move this week and dealing with some not so sharp people and they don't seem to care about becoming sharper. So... Yeah, so it's more like slower, shorter, <laughs> slower. <laughs> weaker, <laughs> something like that. You know, and it also makes you realize that when we talk to these athletes, how amazing they are. Right? Yeah, that and they're and, not normal people. Right. And that you think that the ordinary can become extraordinary, but I you know, mindset is a lot of it. Yes. I think, and, and having that mindset of wanting to be the best, that I mean, that really does help you stand apart from the others. It's crazy. I have to agree. We need some Olympic movers. We do. We really do. And <laughs> Olympic, <laughs> Olympic mortgage brokers and Olympic insurance agents. So now we know some post-sport uh, Yeah, post-sport, post, yeah, post, post-sport yeah. careers, athletes. <laughs> get, let's get on that. <laughs> opportunities knocking and i'm sure the money's decent did you at least get some chocolates or some not yet not yet not yet tomorrow you can get them for half price that's right half price whitman sampler tomorrow (laughs) we know the way to your heart (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah totally 
<laughs> All right, we'll get on with today's show. Today, we are excited to welcome back Book Club Claire to talk about the, our latest book club selection, which was Rome 1960, The Olympics That Changed the World by David Moranis. And uh, we had a lovely conversation with Claire about the themes and what we thought about the book. Take a listen. Claire, welcome back to the show. It is great to be back. Yay. How are you ladies doing? I'm doing Very fantastic. Well. Happy, happy New Year since happy we haven't New gotten year. to talk to you. Yes, it's been a good start to the year. I hope you guys have had a good start as well. Well, well we didn't get to go see the National Figure Skating Championships, but it was, it's been pretty good. Oh, I know. <laughs> Sorry, but it was fantastic. No, hey, take that opportunity. They are they are fun to see. If they're ever in your area of the world, you should go. You should go see some. Yeah, next year they are in South Carolina, Greensboro. So if you oh, are a okay. Greensboro person, go. I you have to go. It's requirement now. <laughs> Excellent. So with how cold we've been, we can now think of the very hot 1960 Rome. Absolutely. That was a big thing in the book was the weather. And I mean, without without air conditioning back then, like we have it now, it must have been absolutely sweltering. And I can't imagine it, to be honest, but they survived. Well, most people survived. Yeah, not everybody. Yeah. Well, before we get into all of the, the health things, I'm going to start with the main topic that kind of flowed through the book. And if you read the book, you know probably what I'm talking about. It is amateurism versus professionalism because at this time that was something that was a very hot topic because nobody could really define what amateurism was and in order for you to be an athlete at this time you couldn't afford it you weren't rich enough to afford these kinds of things like you did 60 years ago you had to pay your way and how could you pay your way if you couldn't get paid so i'm gonna just start it there ladies um what were your thoughts on on how it was evolving? And of course, we can talk about our dear dear old friend, Mr. Avery Brundage, as well. Well, I think it's interesting because athletes, at least in well, athletes all the way through the Olympic history today, it's more they can't afford the sport because there's not enough sponsorship or not enough money flowing to the sport. Versus some sports are smaller than others, but like back in the day, you used to like the Olympics had to be for rich people for the most part. I mean, there were athletes who were poor who got in, but they couldn't maintain. I mean, you wonder how many people would have been three-peat and four-peat Olympians from the first few Olympics if they could afford to just compete as an amateur. You know, I remember when I was growing up watching the figure skaters, it was so many of them were one and done. Right. You know, you didn't see figure skaters coming back. I mean, sometimes they would go for two, like they would be the second team from the U.S., but then they would all go into the escapades after they, you know, won their medal because they just could not afford to keep competing. So, yeah. and, and Brundage was so, we have to keep this pure, but how is it pure if so many of these athletes can't afford to participate? Who right. is it pure for? Right. And who are you excluding who has tremendous talent but can't afford to be an amateur the way you want it to be? Right. And, we're, and clearly the Eastern Bloc countries 
we're not amateurs. <laughs> not at all. Right. Not at all. And yet, oh, they, no, they you know, were totally amateurs. Avery yeah. Brundage went over there himself and he toured all these programs and it was just fantastic. Such amateurism. How the U.S. couldn't just keep up and, and put more sports in PE and promote a healthy lifestyle. They'd be just like the Soviets. I know. It's like that's because, you know, two thirds of the Soviet country was starving. It was just mm. his his willful blindness on that point is, you know, one of a thousand points that make me despise this man. Well, I think the one guy that I, I didn't think this would be our first uh, athlete we talk about, but James Bradford, the weightlifter for from the Washington, D.C. area, he was one that really strove for greatness. But back home, nobody cared. He came home and they're like, oh, you know, we're not going to pay you for the time you were gone. And big whoop, you you. you we're in Rome now. Get back to work, and, and he was working for the government. Oh yeah, that, he was tell a me about it. Worker, and they didn't care. And meanwhile, in in Russia, and, and actually, it, it attracted him to Russia. That he's like, oh, I wouldn't have to work. They'd pay me to to have a house or an apartment and food, and I could train. And then all of a sudden, he couldn't go outside one night from the hotel. And it's like, oh, never mind. I like my freedom. <laughs> But, you know, it's you take one and you give up something else. It's it's a struggle. And I can see how, how that professionalism seesaw was was going. But the problem is, I think, going back to Mr. Brundage, he wasn't leaning into it. He was resisting beyond belief. And he at that time, he should have been leaning into it a little more. Well, there wasn't amateurism. I mean, it just wasn't true. You know, the Soviets, the East Germans, you know, all of those countries were paying their athletes to be athletes. And nobody else had that advantage. Or if they did, like, there were probably a few other countries where they sort of finagled the system in the same way you were in the military. Well, no, you weren't. You were you were stationed to go train. So it was like, I wonder how much racism was involved in that? Because, you know, is it? He's an American, you know, Brundage was an American. He's seeing who would be at greatest advantage with the professionalism. You know, the African-Americans in the United States, you know, they would be making the money. And were they, were, was he really saying, I don't want those people to make the money? I think he also, you know, he promoted a lot of the things that Pierre de Coubertin promoted uh, with that amateurism. But a lot of that, when de Coubertin was in charge, it was rich white people, rich Europeans, mm -hmm. rich Americans, men. and men, men, there you go too. And it was less of a striving for greatness. It was more of a, hey, we're sailors. Let's Let's enter this competition and have fun. Or, hey, we ride horses. Let's go ride our horses and see if we can get a gold medal. And, you know, hi, Dilly D and cup of tea. And, and it's just, you can't do that anymore. And in the, in the 1960s, 50s, it just it was impossible. The wars had changed everything. And the hierarchy of, of white male society was coming to an end. Huzzah. But it took time and we had to kind of change up a little bit in order to make it happen. And now I wonder, have we gone so far in the other direction where there's so much money, 
but only in certain areas. Mm. You know, there's still so many sports that don't have money and so many athletes that still struggle to make enough money and they have to raise funds and do all these crazy things and they can't train. And so is there so much money in sports now that I'm not going to say Brundage was right because he was right about nothing, (laughs) but that it did, we've gone so far in in the opposite direction Mm -hmm. that we're losing some of that joy for sport. I mean, not that the athletes are, but that the Olympics is. Well, many countries nowadays pay their athletes. But, I mean, you even talked to, you know, some Canadians, and they talked about how they get their money nowadays. You have Mm -hmm. to be ranked in in a way. But it's like, should the U.S. government subsidize some of this? Or should we leave it to the USOC to constantly be telling people, hey, please, please, please give us money? Please, you know, it's right. it. Do we really want that? It's I'm, I'm up in the air. I really don't don't know. Well, this actually goes back to the conversation that Jill and I were having. I think it's a, a few weeks ago now where we're, we were talking about what sports should be in and what yes. sports should be out. It's kind of that same thing. Is it the sports that people want to participate in, the sports that people want to watch, the sports that people want to sponsor? Do you factor that in? And I guess Brundage was trying to keep all of that out. He wanted to have the sports for pure sports sake. Mm -hmm. But by 1960, that was already gone. That ideal was was gone and, and not everybody was operating by the same rules. Even with the restrictions that he had, uh, you know, preventing certain athletes from from getting paid in certain ways. I think if that little thing had been lifted, like we had been talking about Lee Calhoun, who had appeared on a game show with his wife called Bride and Groom and got a bunch of presents, wouldn't even keep any of them just so that he could stay labeled as an amateur and almost got kicked out just because he wasn't able to, like, what was it, USOC was saying, ooh, you are, or the IOC. And then you've got David Sim, couldn't play baseball semi-professionally, and Rayford Johnson was going to be an actor in Spartacus, which I have not seen, but I'm sure he would have been great at it. But That said, would have been so cool. <laughs> yeah. It's it's a bummer that these little things weren't allowing them to, to flourish. And right. It, it's almost like you have to be a slave to sport and yes. you can't do anything else. And your slave masters are the IOC who are telling you how to behave and limiting the pool of money that you get. Because even though the IOC now funds some stuff, I mean, it's all trickle down. But I mean, it's just it's crazy to think that the kind of amateurism, it sounds so idyllic, but it doesn't work. Not in human society. Listener Meredith mentioned that the NCAA is facing a very similar kind of thing right now. And I would totally agree with that. Yes. Um, there was that controversy down in, I believe it was Alabama. There is a, a female basketball player who played for Team USA in an under-18 league. And they won. And they the USOC paid her money, but it was like too much money and they didn't realize it and so the alabama state 
sporting commission would not let her play her senior year of high school because she'd made money and all of a sudden it was illegal. And, you know, thinking of those kinds of things brings me back to what they're dealing with in the 1960s with the Olympics. It's like, where do we draw the line? Where can we allow this to happen? And where do we just have to be strict and say, no, this is not working? Right. There was a lot of discussion in the Facebook group about the parallels between the NCAA mm-hmm. and the NCAA of today and the IOC of that time. And it seems like the one biggest parallel is everybody's making money off the athletes, except the athletes except themselves. The athletes. Yeah, that irritates me. And, you know, that people were making money off these athletes at the time. You know, the sponsors were making money. That. But the athletes themselves were struggling, you Mm -hmm. know, literally not having enough money for the food they needed to train. And you hear the same thing about the NCAA players today. And, you know, that's just not okay because that is a slave master relationship. And you get into the whole racist things that still exist today. And, you know, who's leading the NCAA versus who are most of their players? Mm. You know, and it's the same thing in the IOC of 1960. Who are the stars of this Olympics? The Tiger Bells and Cassius Clay and a baby, and they're all black. Mm -hmm. And who's running the IOC? All whites. So it's just, it's the worst kind of hypocrisy. That I think uh, David Moranis did a really nice job with in the book in breaking it down and not making it feel so foreign or, or long ago. I liked how he also did very smooth transitions. You know, he's talking about amateurism versus professionalism. And then all of a sudden he's like, Oh yeah, but speaking of in the USSR, they're doing this kind of stuff. And then all of a sudden he's talking about the USSR and, and um, kind of their rivalry with the USA, and maybe that's my transition, smooth transition into politics versus sport. There were there was a lot of it in this Olympics, and I guess there always is, to be completely honest, but th- there's one, the Cold War, and then you've got China and the Republic of China, because they were insisting on being called that, but mainland China wasn't allowing it. Um, then you've got South Africa, they were in the middle of apartheid, And then you have East and West Germany competing together, but trying to stay separate and eventually breaking apart entirely. You've got these things. Which one struck you the most out of the four that I said, or maybe there's one that I didn't mention at all? Definitely for me, it was the USSR versus USA, because that was familiar to me. You know, I was a child of the 70s and the 80s, and I, I know I've mentioned a million times how the 1980 boycott was such a, a defining moment in Olympic history in my in my childhood brain. So that was just... And they were trying to get people to defect. Mm-hmm. They were recruiting athletes to, to try and convince other athletes. And, and I remember we, we were talking to uh, John Neighbor about 76, how they would sort of talk to the East Germans, but not really. There was always handlers around mm-hmm. and... So that also made it very vivid because that mm-hmm. went on for a very long time in, in that. So I was like, how did that go in the, just in the locker room, you know, was, you know, Oleg, the watcher just standing there 
not letting you talk to anybody. It was amazing. Right. And this was just their third summer appearance at the Olympics. So they're still relatively new, but you're getting at the the crux of what this conflict is really going to be about between the Soviet Union and the U.S. And you're really getting into Cold War. I also really liked the the German conflict, which was very interesting to to read that, you know, we're going to be one unified Germany, but the East doesn't really care about the West. <laughs> and we're going to promote the East. Or the, I loved the rowing story where they had to find something so they couldn't talk about Germany. And they're like, the Czechoslovakians, they came in third. It's the best. <laughs> like, okay. Yeah, by the, at the beginning, they're talking about unification and how wonderful it is. These these two separate countries are coming together as one. And then by the end, they weren't even bothering. They were just right. like, hey, you know, look at these amazing East Germans. Or, hey, these West Germans are doing this. And even that rises to a crescendo eventually um, in the 70s and 80s when East Germany discovers steroids and gets into deep into doping in extreme levels that I don't think hopefully we'll never see again. I think the thing that I was most interested in was the thing that got talked about the least out of all the politics. Um, it was South Africa's apartheid. I don't know that story well enough, but it keeps popping up. And I wish I knew more about it. I've got to do some research about it. But the, the fact that high guys in the IOC were just like, eh, it's okay. And I'm going, how is that okay? And we, I mean, we talked about racism and it's like, that's, that's blatant racism. They weren't letting them do anything. And, you know, deep segregation. And I just, I couldn't imagine having that. And, and then saying, oh, it's fine. Oh, right. Right. Well, I think they were very worried about if they point the finger, they've got four fingers pointing back at them. <laughs> yeah. I mean, honestly, yes, the Americans had a very strong African-American contingent on their team. But this is 1960. I mean, in many areas of the country, they couldn't vote. So I think that's why they were just sort of like, OK, we'll we'll let that be. Mm hmm. But later on, you know, South Africa was excluded. And it was, I mean, again, once you get into the 80s, I remember it so clearly. And, and with Zola Budd not being allowed to compete from South Africa and her mm -hmm. moving to another country, just and, and there was still all this resentment against her. So I think it was just that that generation of the IOC leadership was just like, oh, that's fine. We're all gentlemen here. They would never lie about such a thing. Right. <sighs> It was sort of this casual acceptance that of inferiority. And, you know, a gentleman would never exclude anyone who could compete. Okay. Yeah. Isn't that kind of happening now, too? I mean, even like with, with Russia and, you know, oh, this stuff is, this, this is all going smoothly. You know, even when you, you look back at recent Olympics and you're going, not everything was going smoothly and a lot of things were happening under the table. They just, they want to keep push, put on airs. And yet they're just letting all these dirty deeds happen underground. And it's still happening today. It still bugs me. I don't know. It reminds me, I love making video analogies. I've been watching The Crown on Netflix. And they're talking very much about kind of keeping the illusion of the royal family. Like if people know too much about the royal family and their dirty laundry, that the illusion will be broken and it becomes, well, if they're ordinary people, 
why are they the queen and the mm -hmm. prince and the princess? So I think the IOC almost has that, did and still has that same mentality of we have to keep the illusion, like you were saying, Claire, because otherwise, what is the Olympic Games about? Mm. That's a great point. And right. I, I, I think even now we see that when, um, you know, it takes place in Korea. It's almost a year ago to the day. Yeah. But, you know, how much North Korea do you talk about? How much of, of the, you know, Chinese communism do you talk about? Where do you draw the line on, on bringing in politics? Um, do you do it enough to make a statement and then push the rest aside? Or, or do you allow it to kind of permeate? It's, it's a struggle that they were dealing with back then. I mean, the man from, they called themselves Formosa at the time. But as they were marching in, a guy opened up a sign and it said under protest and he he got away with it and i don't think there was any reprimanding happening but that's that's a big statement that was made it's like we're not going to take this and everyone thought oh that's nice <laughs> and what what was so i didn't have square in my head was how huge the whole red china issue was for the United States mm -hmm. like that we missed that whole section in history you know like you know when you do oh, US right, history right. the year runs out and you've barely gotten to World War II if you're yep. lucky. Right. so yep. that whole section just kind of lost and it just so that is after my history studies and before my life <laughs> so there's that gap and this is right smack in the middle of that gap so just the whole issue of what the State Department was doing and how involved they were in decisions of the Olympic Committee and decisions of the American Olympians and what was happening yeah. struck me and was was so intriguing to me. So now I want to go read more about that. <laughs> yeah, every time I think, oh, I want to read more about this thing or this person. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they pop up in another place and I say, oh, I remember him from this or her from this and thing. I, I love that kind of stuff. And there were a lot of athletes that you recognized. There were also some athletes that maybe you didn't um, pick one that you recognized and were just elated to hear more about and one that you never knew about. Well, this is easy for me because it was Wilma Rudolph had a baby. <laughs> oh, I knew that. I didn't know that. I was like, oh, oh, oh. That's baby, that won three golds. Yeah, just, you know, it's fine. And, you know, the, keeping it a secret. And it was just, but so common for her generation and her, her strata, her social strata. You know, that happened a lot. Mm -hmm. And you couldn't let anybody know. And it's just, so that definitely was sort of a, a half of, of each of your question. Yeah. Um, I think for me, knowing the Rayford Johnson story now because of this book and putting the whole 1984 cauldron lighting into perspective, that was great. And and then not knowing who C.K. Yang was, yes. because that was a great rivalry and great friendship that to me is one of those like, oh, it's an Olympic moment where they work together, yet they're competing against each other. But that's one of those that embodies the Olympic ideal kind of things. Yeah, definitely. I also didn't know. I mean, Muhammad Ali, to me, growing up, was always a professional fighter. 
And even though I knew that he was in the Olympics, hearing more of his story, just the Olympic portion of his story was also interesting. But yeah. it kind of, you know, I don't, I don't know. There, there are so many athletes and stories, and I know the book can't even cover everything, and we only got like a fraction of what happened. And I, part of me wants to know some of the other stories that took place. Listener Patrick mentioned uh, Muhammad Ali, and how in the book he's basically demythologized, especially by his fellow athletes. They kind of just brush off any any signs of greatness, and they're like, oh yeah, he was just. You know, he just showed up and was talking the talk and on the flight there, you know, he, he was talking so much because he was terrified of the plane ride. And, and it was fascinating to hear that. Um, I think this book was published in 2016, 2012, um, early 20 teens. And he had passed away, I believe it was 2016. So a lot of the, the mythology had gone away and by it's, then. It's 2008. Oh, 2008. Oh, yeah. wow. At least the hard earlier. Is. Yeah. Wow. But even then, everybody's like, yeah, he's he's a good guy, but you know, he's not this god among men kind of person. Right. It seemed like the Olympic stage was where he really got to be well known across a larger audience or a broader audience. I mean, he he was an amateur, so how many people really followed amateur boxing? I mean, boxing's got its own very devoted fans but it's it's interesting to to see somebody rise to the next level kind of during this event but you get that with every olympics like you get the stars who who become household names i think for me i didn't know a lot about rafer johnson and his success so when they mentioned that he lit the cauldron in 84 i was just like well who's that guy but now i realize how great he was Another guy that I feel bad for was Ray Norton, who yes. was like last place oh, in the hundred, right. had a bad exchange in the relay, or else they yeah. would have won gold and then that. failed the two hundred. Yeah. Oh, he's one of those guys where you build up the expectations and then all of a sudden it just all comes crashing down. You can't recover. That I felt would've... so bad for him. He was and... like the heartbreak kid of the right. they didn't have them back then, you know, they didn't mm-hmm. talk about he would have been that story. Right. Um, the guy that I knew about, but I loved hearing more of his story, was um, the Ethiopian Abebe Bakila, who ran barefoot for the marathon because he wore shoes, but then he bought different shoes and they were causing him blisters. So he just said, forget it. I'm just going to run in bare feet. And everybody said, yeah, we don't have to worry about that guy. Comes to goes to show how presumptuous that was. Yeah, just hearing how he just kept on motoring along and no one thought he would win and he just took the world by storm and and now when you think distance running you think of those african runners because of him that was not a thing back even in 1960 it all changed once once the kenyans and the ethiopians were were brought in to compete in all those other african countries it brought a whole new level to distance running i thought that was the coolest thing what surprised me that i i did not know was the silver medalist was a Moroccan. Mm-hmm. And and that was also a very big surprise. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I had known Bakila, knew him from the, the running barefoot. And they in the stories of him, it was always like he was this f- farm kid who didn't own shoes and he sort of tried. No, he was a military officer yep. who trained very hard and competed in Africa. So he wasn't this backward. He just wasn't known. 
yes. out, you know, in Europe or in North America where there were the major world marathons, but he didn't drop out of nowhere to, to run this race. Um, mm-hmm. But he was so unexpectedly amazing and beautiful to watch. Yeah. I had a question about that. This was the one of the only, or maybe the only marathon that was run at night why do you think that was? Because I think that's a great idea, especially if a place is so hot. I was, this, I thought, was question. misrepresented in the book because I, I wasn't going to mention the film, but I do want to mention the film in this. It wasn't run at night. The great majority of it was in daylight. Okay. It was that. La- it was in the evening, I assume, because of the weather, because it was cooler. Mm-hmm. But it's only that it's famous for that last, you know, half an hour in darkness, but it was, it wasn't that late when they started. I mean, it was, it was two hours, but it wasn't like the whole thing was run in the dark. And maybe that's just my, because that's your image, right? Of a Running into the form, you know, to the archway at night with the lights. And, and maybe my assumption is whenever I think marathon, I think of how I run marathons, where it takes me six hours or eight hours even because I'm slow. And it's like, oh, yeah, world-class marathon runners can go, you know, two hours, two hours, 30, and they're fine. So it's like, oh, this isn't like an up-all-night kind of thing. It's just, you know, you, you race and then you're done. So, man, that's that's my misassumption, I, I suppose. So because the picture he put... In the book was of that famous ending of the marathon, so yes. it sort of reinforced the idea that it was night, it was late, it was like he was arriving there at one in the morning, and that's not quite, I think, how it really went. It was only like what seven, eight o'clock at night. I don't know how late it would have had to have been at that time of year for it to be dark. Yeah, but it was dramatic. I mean the attack. The Italians knew how to do drama, man. Oh, yeah. And and where they staged it, just running past the Colosseum and the arches and yeah. nice, what a nice road to do. Okay, so I have some, some updates. The oh, okay. marathon started at 5.30 in the evening okay. and finished at like 7.30. Okay. So it started, oh, this is what, because it finished at the Arch of Constantine, right? Yeah. And that was one of the like the only marathons that did not finish in the stadium. Yes, which was way different than usual. And I think in Tokyo the following year when Bikila went again, they actually did go into the stadium and you know he was greeted by throngs of fans because they knew him by then. You know, right. four years later, his reputation, you know, was finally up there. So the cool thing that I thought about this marathon, and he mentioned it a couple times in the book, was that they, the runners ran past a column that Mussolini had taken from Ethiopia. And oh, yeah. how he was wa- running past that, which was his column or his country's column. And now it was standing in, in Italy. And and I've all, always thought that, you know, when you go to museums, when I went to the museum in, um, in London, it's like, oh, this is all great stuff, but it's not from England. It's from you know, Greece it's acquired, acquired. Yes. Yeah. but eventually I, you know, as, as I keep reading the book and, and, uh, if you haven't gotten to the end of the book yet, this is a surprise, but after the turn of the millennium, they actually took the column back to Ethiopia. And I was just like, I was waving my arms. I was like, yes. Didn't that make this. you so happy? I was so happy. It's like, Oh, I'm so glad that thing still isn't there. That's a, that would be such a bummer. 
So those, that that was my those are my athletes that I I enjoyed, and I, I like to hear about the Tiger Bells. There's actually a whole book about the Tiger Bells, that maybe maybe not right away, but in the future, I would like to to read up on that a little more. Just not to hear just about Wilma Rudolph, um, but to hear about the rest of them that were part of that that group because it just sounded really cool that these ladies and I love the name. I also thought it was funny how the coach always insisted their coach. Uh, insisted that they always look like ladies, you know, where he was saying foxes, not oxes. <laughs> and isn't that what we still do to female athletes? Mm-hmm. You right. know, right. who gets all the attention? The ones who are the prettiest. I mean, we've talked about that a lot in the lead up to to Pyeongchang and, and that some of these amazing athletes get passed over because they're not pretty. And he knew that. that. Who should get all the praise? The shot putters, duh, people, come on. They're the best. But even back then, he recognized the importance of appearances. Yes. You know, the coach knew. Yeah. Well, going to steroids, this is really a year where they start coming out and people are going, oh, this is a thing now. And um, we had a Danish cyclist, like the first day of competition, uh, new. Enemark Jensen, who died while in a heated race, road race with his teammates. And it's not confirmed whether the steroids did it, but it was confirmed that he had taken, you know, extra things that maybe would have increased his performance. How much of, of the steroid use in 1960, you know, increased our awareness and how much did it not? What do you think about that? Well, the weightlifters were all talking about it Mm. and saying, oh, yeah, the East Germans are doing this and the Russians are doing this. And so they were talking about the athletes themselves were talking about it. I don't think the world outside had a clue for at least 20 years to really tackle it. Right. Because how much did they have exposure to this? Because this is also the first Olympics where you got to watch them on television relatively soon after the events happened, at least here in the United States. I'm guessing Europe had a little bit uh, easier time of it. But still, getting the exposure for some of these sports, that was, I think, part of the appeal. They, They were excited because there were new heights being reached. Unfortunately, they didn't know what was going to happen to them years into the future, where, okay, these are great for now, but they're also slowly killing you or doing stuff to your body that you don't want or giving you cancer or giving doing whatever. And it's disheartening that they just said, oh, this is going to be good for your performance. But they didn't say, okay, what are the side effects and what's this going to do? Or they didn't care. Well, doesn't that go back to the slave and master analogies that we were making earlier? This was the sporting elite of whatever country we're talking about using the athletes as pawns in a greater business, in a greater game, in a, in a greater mission. You know, the, why is it so many of these stories, the athletes always get in trouble and get screwed. That makes me so mad. You kind of wonder how I'm going to bring it back to good old Mr. Brundage. You kind of wonder if, the policies they put into place to to keep this notion and daydream of and uh, I'm sorry to keep this illusion 
of amateurism alive if those policies didn't contribute to the rise of steroids or the Absolutely. rise of other other issues that now the Olympic Committee has to face and deal with. And of course, they don't really want to deal with them because they're not nice. But, you know, what what kind of seeds did this leadership plant that have caused so many problems down the road? Well, why do you why do you lie and steal? Because somebody shut you out. You know, it's, what is that? Les Miserables, Jean Valjean. He only steals the loaf of bread because he can't find work, you know, and he has to feed his family. Not not all scenarios are like that, but a lot of it comes out of desperation because because they're being excluded in some way. And Mm -hmm. a lot of things can change when you are given what you need. Well, Mm -hmm. it goes back to, I think, the, the subtitle of the book. Oh, yeah. Where he's talking about how this is a pivotal moment and the Olympics could have gone in many different directions. And on some, in some ways it truly embraced the, the world changes. There were more women competing. They were competing on more equal footing. Certainly African-Americans were heralded in a way that they weren't at home. And that sort of ushers in that, uh, you know, sport leading the way to society. But in other ways, it changed the Olympic world in a very negative way. So, you know, Avery Brundage and his willful blindness to apartheid, to steroids, to the changing economics ushered in that era of some really awful things that happened. So it changed it in for good and bad in oh, that man. sort of pivotal year. You just wrapped it up so beautifully. Put a little bow on that. <laughs> Drop the mic, Allison. You are done. <laughs> I don't have anything else to add. This was good. Yeah, this was yeah. Great, yeah. This is a great book. I have to say, it I, was a lot. It was big yeah. and overwhelming, but I, I actually got very into it. Once I got into it, I was into it. Yeah, 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 and so much. And I mean, it, it really. I don't think you could write a one book that encompasses everything about a single singular games, but I think David Moranis did a really good job. Um, it'd be interesting to see part two, you know, like what, what are some of the other things? Cause, cause there's a million stories that go with a, with an Olympics, but this was really good. It really did a nice job of trying to give you a world perspective, especially if you don't have it or didn't live during that time. So. And I like being able to take that step back and looking 60 years into the past and saying, okay, what happened at these times? And we can try and do that now. They published a book about Rio 2016. It's only been three years. Right. You're not going to get the, yeah, you're not going to get the full picture. So looking at, at the Olympics in, in the middle of the century is, is great. And uh, when it comes up again, I'm looking forward to, to seeing a, another perspective, another type of Olympics. But yeah, this was good. And hopefully our next book is just as good. So Claire, what book are we going to read next time? Well, we are going to take a look at winter Olympics competition from about 15, 16 years ago uh, when we had the big figure skating pairs scandal, which basically changed all of figure skating scoring forever. And that is from the 2002 Olympics. 
It's the book is called The Second Mark: Courage, Corruption, and the Battle for Olympic Gold. I don't know why they think they have to have such long subtitles, but whatever. It's written by Joy Goodwin, and I I love the story because and we were mentioning this earlier, but all three of us watch these Olympics. Even me, sorry, the youngin, um, <laughs> I have experience with, with this and I remember watching it live. So we can bring our own personal perspectives into it. And listeners, hopefully you guys can too bring those awesome comments that you had. The Facebook group was really jumping with our previous book. So I'm excited to see what they think of this. Yeah, exactly. It'll be fun to have something that's a little more recent and a little more contemporary and also touch on the Winter Olympics. And we will have a link on our website for you to shop through Amazon. If you go there and shop either for a physical copy or a Kindle copy, uh, if you shop through our site, we, we will get a little kickback and that helps us keep the show going. So thank you very much. And thank you, Claire. This was great again. Oh, Yay, Claire. Love the book club. You're welcome. I have so much fun with this and I love being able to communicate with you guys. It's, it's just great. When when do you think we should have book club again? Maybe we should target um, after spring break it, for all okay. those people that get spring breaks. Um, so maybe April sometime. That sounds so, good. That yeah. Sounds like, good. That's it. yeah. Target right. being finished around Easter, listeners, or else you will get an incomplete on your assignment. Sorry, that's the teacher in me. <laughs> And can, can I say I got a little nervous there for a second? I'm like, oh no! I'm sorry! What if, what if my mom finds out? I have a permission slip. <laughs> a doctor's note. That's right. All right, well, we will do our next book club meeting at the end of April. So, everyone, order your book through our website and get to reading. This will be a good one, I'm sure. Yes, take care, everyone. Thank you so much, Claire. And don't forget that one of the easiest ways to support the show is by shopping through Amazon. You can buy our next book club selection through our book club club page at olimfever.com. Also, the next time you need to get something from Amazon, stop by our website first. That's olimfever.com. Click on the Amazon banner. We'll get a little commission from your purchases, which really helps us put together more cool Olympic Fever things as we get closer to Tokyo 2020. Thank you so much for your support. Moving on to Olympians in the news. Man, it has been a lousy couple of weeks. For I want my Whitman to, sampler. Right? To, just to, to eat your way through my this. aching heart. And right? I am not being sarcastic. No, there I mean, yeah, there's been some... A lot of not good news. Right? And last week was one thing we forgot to mention, the passing of Mati Nukunen, the great Finnish ski jumper, who is also known as the Flying Finn. Uh, Nukunen passed away at the age of 55. Nukunen uh, won silver and gold at Sarajevo, and then he won three golds in Calgary. And so he was really the star of the sport for those two games. And after his ski jumping career, he had a he had a hard time. He had a lot of issues with alcohol. He went to jail a couple of times. Um, there's been a lot of biographies about him. And he was the subject of a 2006 movie called Mati, Hell is for Heroes, that the Finnish people loved, <laughs> apparently. I watched, I watched the trailer because I'm hoping to find it because it looked kind of fun. Um, you know, you you wanted to compare. I wanted to compare that with the Eddie the Eagle Edwards movie. <laughs> well, they were you know, very two, different characters. Very very different characters, but you know, two different takes on a Calgary Olympics. But the trailers on YouTube, we'll put a link in our show notes. But you know, he passed away at the age of fifty five. Uh, 
cause not mentioned yes just too young and that's it's so tragic to have somebody who found what he excelled at at a young age and then just once his career skiing career was over couldn't transition very well into succeeding at life so it's really sad yeah and then more sad right maximilian reinald an olympic gold medalist rower from rio who was a longtime member of his country's successful men's eight crew has died this was really sad too reinald's won gold at london 2012 and silver at rio 2016 and you know he collapsed while he was cross-country skiing in St. Moritz over the weekend, and he was only 30 years old. That's Do we know so anything? T- and we don't know anything We don't else. know. Cause of death not announced yet. So, <sighs> uh, it, that's really sad. Um, but it keeps on coming. Right, right. So last Saturday, Jamaican Olympian and national record holder Kamoy Campbell collapsed during the men's 3,000 meters at the uh, New York Road Racers uh, Milrose Games. And he was a pace setter for that race and just collapsed on a curve. And uh, they had to use a defibrillator on him to resuscitate oh. him. They went to the hospital, was in a coma for a while. He's out now. He's out of the coma and he's stable and he was walking around the other day. Good. But he's still in the hospital and they're still probably yeah. trying to figure out what's going on with his body. But, oh my gosh. Yeah, it's been a sad week. Really yeah. sad week. Do we have any happy news? We do have happy news. Korea wants to bid for the summer 2032 Olympics. They want to do a They're joint. They're really thing. thinking this ahead. I know. Well, they want it's Seoul wants to bid with um, North Korea and do a kind of a joint. Yes, I know. Um, wow. A joint okay. effort. So that really kind of goes along with what uh, T-Bak was working on before Pyeongchang with having the United right. teams. But, you know, we are talking about a long time away from now. So who knows what the political climate will be like yeah. and um, all of that. But that, that well, was really I'm going to think of it as a positive thing. That okay. that's going right. to be, at the very least, the North and the South Koreans have to be talking to each other while they're preparing the bid. Right. Well, and so that can't be a bad thing. Right. And they still have like five or six years before that bid is due. So we got to, you know, there's there's some time to Talking work stuff is out. Good. That's right. That's right. Talking's so. good. We'll see what happens. I'm not sure that the the people of Seoul were super excited because it will cost a lot of money to put the games on, but never know. Give me something. <laughs> How about this? The IOC is going to have a new headquarters that will open this year in Lausanne, Switzerland. It will open on Olympic Day, which is on June 23rd, and that's going to be the 125th anniversary of the creation of the International Olympic Committee. Okay, that's pretty good. That's good. We got to think I about bet what that's going to be really pretty. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Come on. Spare no expense, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I haven't been getting the steaks and watches. It's got to go someplace. Oh, man. But you know, that reminds me that Olympic fever, Olympic day will be coming up as well. So we got to think yeah, of something to do. Got to do. Yeah. Yeah. So if okay. you got ideas, let us know. Because we would love to celebrate again. Last year was fun. Yeah. Tried to hold, I, we, I mean, a bunch I, of us tried to hold one to sports. I know. At the very least, I think I will make my Olympic ring jello mold this year. And it's going to be big. So I'll have jello <laughs> for everybody. <laughs> Can be a Patreon benefit. 
there you go. Hey, speaking of Patreon, we'd like to take a moment to thank all of our Patreon supporters. And we invest a lot of time and money in putting the show together. We appreciate the patrons who help us make it happen. Join our group at patreon.com slash Fever and get special patron benefits, including some special audio and perhaps jello. I mean, and Olympic I, colors. Right. And well, and you know that Svedka Vodka now has branded jello, so you could always make jello shots spiked for jello yeah, spiked yeah. jello for uh, those of age absolutely Could and then be. a non-spiked one for the kids that's right or those who don't I'm, i better get cooking right now it's <laughs> yeah, gonna take, it's gonna a, take while. a long time to set <laughs> all right let's keep looking for some good news how about let's see what's going on at tokyo 2020 So the Tokyo Organizing Committee collected 5 million used cell phones and 47,500 tons of electronics to recycle all the metals needed for the 2020 uh, games. And they have already collected enough bronze, silver, and gold to create over 5,000 metals. And the project was going to keep going for another year, but because they have everything, they're going to end it on March 31st. Wow. So they're way ahead of schedule. Wow. A, it's very cool that they are recycling this, the the metals. That's really a cool idea. I am kind of blown away by they need 5,000 plus metals. Right. Right. So I don't know if that means now they're going to also do the Paralympic medals or if that number includes Paralympic. That's a good question. I wasn't sure from the press release because they just said Olympic, mm-hmm. but I think they have enough metal to, to do it all. So yay to the Japanese. They just set up boxes and the Holy Japanese cow. people, yeah, just threw all the stuff in. Wow. I would do it. I know I have a couple of cell phones probably lying around. Exactly. And if you knew that your old cell phone and all your stupid texts were going to end up in somebody's <laughs> silver medal. You'd be like, I'm all over that. <laughs> all right. So that is some good news. Or is it getting better? A little bit. Okay. Yes. Well, let's check in with Team Olympic Fever and uh, see how we're doing there. There's a big slice of tofu. That's right. There is a, oh my gosh, it's just winter sports galore. So all of our, our winter Team Olympic Fever members have been competing, it seems like. Aaron Jackson finished 15th in the 500 meters at the World Single Distance Championship in Germany, which is up from her 24th place finish in Pyeongchang. That's really she's good. Just, she's just getting better every time. Oh, it's nice. Like oh she, my gosh. Ah, uh, And she's fun to watch. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. The Biathlon World Cup circuit is in North America, which has been very exciting for North American fans of biathlon who don't have to get up at the crack of dawn to watch (laughs) the feeds. Um, But they were in Canmore, uh, Canada, which is outside of Calgary last weekend. It was brutally cold there. So a lot of the races got canceled. And it was funny because if you watched, a lot of people had KT tape taped over half of their faces to... Yes, prevent I saw, for, I did saw you the, see that. Yeah, to prevent that was frostbite. For frostbite. Yes, that was to prevent frostbite. Yeah, it was oh. really brutally cold there. Wow. Um, but uh, the U.S. women's biathlon team, which included our Team Olympic Fever biathlete Claire Egan, they finished eighth in the relay, which has been their best finish of the season so far. That's good. And then this week they're at Soldier Hollow, and right before we taped, the women's 7.5-kilometer sprint was uh, happened, and Claire finished 19th. Also Very not good. bad. Yeah. Yeah. 
So I guess the polar vortex was good for them. I guess so. FIS, which is the Skiing Federation, had some uh, championships in uh, Utah last weekend. Last weekend. Yes. And Chloe Kim won the snowboard halfpipe. Yes, she did. And was very impressive, needless to say. Yes. Bradley Wilson, he competed in moguls, and he skied pretty big there. And uh, he didn't make the super final in the single. It was exciting because I turned on the TV and just in time to see him race, and he just attacked the slope. It was really cool to watch him. And But he did get a silver in the dual moguls, which is fantastic. That's awesome. Yeah, nice job. And then uh, saw a little bit of the aerials and got to see uh, Team Olympic Fever member Emily Cook on the mountain coaching the the skiers right before they go down the hill it's always so much fun to see like oh there's emily okay here's what i want in my life mm-hmm. i would like emily cook standing at my door when i go to leave in the morning and <laughs> say to me whatever she says to those skiers because those skiers always go down with a smile on their face and they attack so i want to know can we tweet her and find out what she say to those people because i want to imagine that in my head every morning when i go out the door that emily cook is telling me whatever it is she tells those skiers because they're laughing they're having a great time up there and they're about to go fling their bodies into space i'm just going to work (laughs) i will ask her yeah but i would agree i mean it would be great to have that like you can do it or whatever she whatever says. she says yeah, yeah i want to know all right we'll work on that the u.s national curling championships has been going on for a while and uh team schuster is currently undefeated in the tournament right now correct yes so they're going into the playoffs this coming weekend okay so they in the round robin they were defeat undefeated Right. Okay. So it's like a like the Olympic competition where they have yes. a big round robin round and then uh, a bracket. Yes. Okay. So we'll watch the bracket this weekend. All right. That's exciting. And you should check out Book Club Claire was at uh, the Nationals last weekend. I know she video blogged about it. So go out, go and check her blog, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. So if our team Olympic Fever members have made you inspired to work out, why not do it in an Olympic Fever t-shirt? We've got all sorts of items and designs in our Tee Public store, so click on the link at olimfever.com to buy something comfortable and support the show. And you don't have to work out in it. You can no, do couch can. sports. <laughs> and We won't y- judge. Y- when you're cheering on Team Olympic Fever members, you should do it in Olympic Fever gear. All right, on that note, we'll wrap it up for this week, and we'll catch you here back next week with part two of our interview with diver Laura Wilkinson, so be sure to tune in for that. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, keep the flame alive. Stay in touch. Email us at olimfever at gmail.com. That's O-L-Y-M fever at gmail. You can also leave us a voicemail at 530-763-3837. That's 530-70-FEVER. We're on Twitter at Olympfever, and you can join in the conversation at our Facebook group, Olympic Fever Podcast. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep the flame alive. Opportunities knocking, and I'm sure the money's decent. <laughs>